I'm Jan C. from Texas, and I'm an addict. And I am really glad to be here. I mean, I'm like pumped, and then it's kind of like, okay, now i got to like walk through pain. And it was like pain getting over here after the speaker meeting. I mean, it was, it was, it was close. Um, I am really glad to be here. That was cute. Um, my glasses. I brought my glasses. I brought my basic text up here. The days of me being able to spontaneously read anything have long since passed, um, including those new little basic texts. Did you see those? Like Barbie basic texts or something, you know? I, I, I had like four of them. It's like, what is this? I can't, you know. So, um, yeah, we need big basic texts. Um, I've been clean since July 12th of 1983, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and also, I'm from the uh, Miracles Happen in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'd like to just say how grateful I am to a lot of my, my friends, both from uh, Fort Worth and Dallas, that are, that are here tonight for this workshop in Texas and as a whole. It really helps being up here, because I, I am I'm very intimidated to be here up here speaking this weekend. I've heard a lot of good speakers, and it's an honor, but it's also scary to be up here. Um, you know, when I originally got the call about my workshop topic of walking through the pain, quite frankly, I was a little bit surprised because I really don't consider that I had gone through a lot of pain since coming into recovery. But I did what I usually do when I get assigned a workshop topic. You know, I, I get kind of quiet and I ask God to help me see where the topic applies to me. And I realized that actually since coming in to the program, I had been audited, fired, sued, married, divorced, been left for the other woman, been the other woman, called my boyfriend in bed with another woman, buried both parents, lost all my money, not once but twice, and my dog died. And I thought, I don't know about a workshop topic, but this is one hell of a country and western song. But, you know, I don't, when I think about the last couple of decades, that is not the stuff that I remember, okay? I remember the things like um, my first convention uh, back in 1984 in Chicago, the World Convention um, back in Chicago, and the first time I saw a girl with a purple mohawk. I mean, we just don't get a lot of purple mohawks in Texas. And I remember um, things like me and Mary trying to use an espresso machine for the first time. And nobody told us the significance of kind of locking down that little basket with the coffee. And when she went over to check it because it didn't seem to be working right, and that coffee came shooting out and everybody in the room had to hit the floor. I mean, I didn't know coffee grounds could travel like that. They have aerodynamic lift if, if given enough force. And, you know, for months, Mary said that people would shoot and them over with coffee, and they'd say, well, good, but you're not going to make espresso, are you? But, you know, I also remember I also remember three women who hopped on a plane from Dallas to Los Angeles when um, I received a doctorate degree at 18, year, at, uh, 18 years clean, and they came out to stand in as my family that has since passed away. And that's what this program, that's what I remember about this. Um, you know, um, the reason I probably remember that is, because, quite frankly, you guys took a, um, a scared little girl who was not going to tell you she was scared, and you turned her into a woman and a woman that could hang. Um, when I grew up, I grew up in what I would consider comfortable, very comfortable circumstances to parents that actually um, – really wanted children, okay, and um, and they had me. My sponsor says that we often go through things and situations, and we come out of them making decisions that shape us and impact our perspective and our behavior for years to come. My parents were children of the Depression, and when they came out of the Depression, they made a decision that no child of theirs would ever go through the pain and the struggle that they went through. Now, that's good, except when you think about that they just produced one great little addict, okay? I also remember that growing up, um, three of my best friends when I was little all lost a parent to a very sudden and violent death. 
Uh, one was a convenience store robbery. Another one was actually a mafia hit. And um, a third one was, was domestic violence. And that may seem like a cliche now, but this was back in the mid-60s, the early to mid-60s. That stuff wasn't happening then. We were, like, wrapped up in Doris Day and, and, you know, stuff like that, and everybody just knew that all you needed was, like, a dog named Lassie, okay? We didn't – that stuff wasn't happening. And my parents – my sponsor and I talked about whether or not – I got prepared for things like that. And quite frankly, I don't even think that their generation was prepared for some things like that. And, you know, eventually my mother would turn to alcohol, and my dad was already kind of a workaholic and would turn to gambling. So um, I didn't get a lot of stuff as far as coping skills. What I came away from childhood with was, um, after watching those three friends in a short space of time lose that, I came away with some very faulty premises in my childhood and early adult years. Number one, if you lost your breadwinner, you were screwed, okay, in your family. Now, not that you, if you lost God, and I'm not saying that that's not what God said. I'm saying that's not what I heard. What I heard and what I saw whispered in those families when those uh, parents went down and when they were killed is that what was going to happen to the family. And my best friend, Lynn, it was actually her mother. Her mother was the breadwinner of that family, and her whole family got separated and broken up in different parts of the country. I also, because of this breadwinner issue, I got the message that that security was tied into finances. You didn't have security if you didn't have the money, okay? Um, And the third thing I got is that there was shame attached to actually not having money. And I know today that came back, that ties back into uh, having uh, parents that grew up during the Depression because in their generation there was an awful lot of shame attached to whether or not you could provide for your family and whether or not you lost money. Uh, whether it was real. And I share that because, like I said, a lot of these things, these are messages that I didn't even know at the time that I'm getting. Okay, I don't know. I don't know where they, I didn't know for a long time where they came from, but they were with me. So it was no surprise that when I got to this program, quite frankly, I knew I had a drug problem. You just can't spend your nights with your, on your hands and knees with a flashlight and a pair of tweezers picking sheetrock and loading it into a pipe and not know that that can't be a good thing, okay? But I also know that it had been the dope that had kept me from flying apart from a long time because I was positive that whatever was coming was going to happen to me next because it happened to everybody around me. So I lived in fear just waiting for it to happen. Um, When I did clean up, the first thing that probably I had to learn to walk through, because that's what we're going to talk to is actually once we get here, walking through some of this stuff. One of the first things that I had to walk through when I got here um, was actually leaving behind some of those old playmates and play, uh, playpens that they talk about, um, particularly or specifically that um, cocaine dealer boyfriend, that, which is kind of a useful combination for women. Have you noticed that? Okay. Um, but they told me I had to kind of leave him behind. And actually, he made it quite clear when I cleaned up, he didn't want to come in. Okay. He had no intentions of it. Two weeks, you know, in a treatment, he calls me again to tell me he has no intentions of coming in. Well, when I got out of um, treatment, he called, and he said, would you like to talk? And I said, sure. And I'm thinking... This will work. This will work. Okay? Just because I clean up does not mean the whole world has to clean up. You know, as a matter of fact, I know several people that are married to spouses that are social drinkers. Granted, maybe they did not sell crack cocaine, but they are still, you know, this this can work. So he comes over, and the next morning, we'll just kind of skip the good part. The next morning, I make coffee, and I remember we were sitting at the coffee table, or sitting at the kitchen table drinking it, and um, he stirred in some cream, and then sure enough, he reaches in, and he pulls out a little vial, and he taps out some crystal meth into a spoon, and he stirs it in his coffee. He starts to put the cap back on, and he just pauses, and he hands it out to me. I said, no, thank you. I don't do that anymore. He just kind of shrugged me, put it away. We finished our coffee. And I took our cups back over to the sink, and I sat them down. And I looked at that cup, the one that had the spoon, that had touched the crystal meth, and all I wanted to do was just lick the spoon. I swear, that's all I wanted to do was lick the spoon. And right then and there, I knew that this was not going to work. I knew that there was no way I was going to be able to hang with somebody that did dope, and the day would come that I was going to do a heck of a lot more than lick the spoon. And I just felt something inside cave. 
that uh, was a Saturday morning, and we had our little aftercare group for that hospital, which I kind of thought was kind of lame, but I thought, well, maybe I better go this morning. So, uh, but I'm not going to tell him that he came over. I'm not going to tell him that he had the crystal meth. I'm not going to tell him how bad I wanted to use. I'm not going to tell him how, want, how bad I wanted that man. And then when I got up there and I saw who was leading that group, that it was Marty. Marty was this smart, sophisticated, well-put-together woman that was just tough as nails, and there was no way I was going to tell her what had gone on. And I sat on my hands for that whole meeting, and then I did that thing. I asked myself that one simple question that I have had to ask myself many times over the last 22 years. Do I want to save my face or save my ass? So I just made the decision for once to save my ass, and I just started talking, and I started crying, which kind of, I kind of like the fact that being a girl, we can kind of cry, and the guys are like, oh, my God, oh, my God, let's fix it, and I kind of like that. That works really well sometimes. Side note there. Um, so um, I went ahead, and I told him everything. I told him how bad I wanted to use dope. I told him how bad I wanted that man, and I told him how bad I just hurt, and I just cried, and I just hurt. And that woman, Marty, she pulled her chair right there in front of me, and I thought, oh, Lord, here it comes. And she leaned into me, and she said, I have such empathy for you. And she proceeded to tell me about how when she cleaned up, she had to leave behind the man that she loved and had to make a choice. And when that woman talked, I knew two things. The very first two tools that I would get in this program of Narcotics Anonymous on how to get through pain, the first one is that I have to voice it. I have to admit it. I have to tell you in. I cannot keep it to me. I cannot keep it between me and God. Okay? I have to tell you. That's our first step. I don't care what it is. I don't care what the problem is. The first thing I have to do is voice it. The second thing is that when that woman leaned into me and told me how she felt and how she understood and that she was with me all the way, that was the beginning. It wasn't the end, but that was the beginning of the competition that I had had with women all of my life. Um, now, I kind of knew I was probably going to have to give up this guy that was, was using. So I am kind of a dope fiend. So when I entered that hospital, I kind of had a backup plan or a backup stash. I had three days. He had one day. And if there is anything on the face of the earth sicker than a treatment center romance, I hope I don't find it again. Fortunately, I had a counselor that came in, and he knew that I, that I still had one on the outside, and it kind of started one on the inside. And so he came in a couple of days before I was supposed to leave, and he said, apparently you do not have much trouble getting into a relationship, but you may have had trouble getting clean. He said, I will suggest to you that if you continue the way that you're going, you will put them first ahead of your recovery, and you'll lose it all. He said, if, however... You stay here and let us show you how to put your recovery first ahead of that. You may someday have it all. So for me, what you taught me to do was the first thing that I did is I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, regardless of whether that guy went. I got out of there. I got a sponsor, and I started working the steps, regardless of the fact that he did not. And quite frankly, the third thing that I did is the only way I could keep the intensity down of that relationship and not let it become all-important was during that 90-day period, I just didn't sleep with the guy, okay? Now, that worked for me because what it did is it gave me a foundation, and that's a foundation that I needed because I got 90 days clean, and this guy that I picked up in treatment that had been to like 12 or 13 treatment centers, what a surprise, he relapsed. I know, you're shocked. Um, the first time he relapsed, I could kind of brush it off of, well, you know, he'd be, he was a, you know, adult thing stuck over with those poor alcoholics, and they just didn't understand him and stuff like that. The second time, he's only gone for one night. The second time, I had, we had about, I had, I had about six months, and uh, he was gone only again for one night. But this, this was a little bit harder to brush off, because for one thing, this was kind of interfering with my marriage plans, which we really don't have time to go in right now. That's another workshop, okay? But it was interfering with that. And then when I had a year clean, he actually told my sponsor, not me, but he told my sponsor that he had actually been out using, and not for a little bit, but he'd been out using for several months. And I was devastated. I felt like I'd been sucker punched. For one thing, I felt stupid. I'm living with the man by this point, and I didn't even know that he was using. And it turns out that some of us in this program have a capacity for, like, seeing only what we want to see. Uh, 
just a few of us. I know it's an, I'm an isolated case. Um, the other thing is that I felt betrayed. I felt it was him and me. Back in the early 80s, a lot of people weren't cleaning up. And if you told somebody that you didn't use dope, they're like, why not? You know, if you told them you didn't drink, you're like, are you sick? What? You know, um, you know nowadays it's kind of fashionable. But um, it wasn't back then. And so I kind of felt like it was him and me against the world. And when he told me that he'd been using, he was now them. He's no longer us. And that's when I got another one of the tools that I had had to use, and it's one of the most important, important tools that I have today. And that's the time that I learned how to get through a period, get through a night, five minutes at a time. I very much remember sitting on that couch, staring at that clock, going, five minutes, I'll give it five more minutes. You know, and it wasn't that I just felt like I was going to use, I felt like I was just going to become part of the scenes. But I got through that night using that simple tool you told me to do, five minutes at a time. I can do anything for five minutes. Now, I got through that night, and I actually had to get through a lot more because I did stay with him, and he did start this pattern of he would relapse. And one reason that I'm I'm sharing this is because um, just the nature of the fact that that we actually hook up with, with people. A lot of people will date and marry people that they're around a lot, and that's usually kind of us. So the odds are um, there's a good chance that many of us will have to or have had this same experience of how to get through a spouse using, and that's what. And, you know, let me also say something that one of the reasons I liked this topic, and I really could have, should have said this early on because I know it's true for me. It, it just, I just thought of something a minute ago. Um, we were talking about this at dinner the other night, and that's the fact that, that the pain that I'm going to talk about tonight, I know today usually comes at me from one of two ways. You know, the first way is actually uh, best demonstrated by a, a line that I read not long ago in a, in a writing assignment that I had. And the, the author was using a metaphor of a dark night to describe pain. And I just like this, so I'm just going to share it with you. Uh, but he said, you don't choose a dark night for yourself. It is given to you. Your job is to get close to it and sift it for its gold. Now, things like the ill health and the death of my parents, and we were talking the other night about Patty's grandbaby dying. That's certainly not something you choose, okay? But quite frankly, the fact is is that that is also the type of pain that is just life on last terms. And we have got to be able to survive just life on last terms. One problem is, as our literature very clearly states, we are people who are incapable of facing life on last terms. So one of, some of the, the stuff that I'm sharing now is kind of stuff that uh, that kind of comes down the pike that we actually have got to learn to walk through. The other stuff that I'm going to kind of share, I hope, later on, I, I sometimes I think I know what I'm going to share and then whatever happens, happens. But um, what a surprise, we're an addict. But we are an addict, tell you like that. Um, the other thing is that line that's also in our literature about through our inability to accept personal responsibilities. We actually are creating our own problems. A few of you are nodding, okay? Because what that tells me is that... Um, Life on life's terms aside, I have the capacity through not taking care of my business, create problems where problems never even existed to begin with, okay? And I'm not talking about before I got here and just after I'm talking about I'm talking about four months ago when I'm scheming on how to get onto the island of Oahu, okay? I am talking about that this is something that I have to deal with is that I have the capacity to create problems or compound an already existing one. And that creates a pain that I also have to learn to deal with and not just survive, but actually try to um, to address another way. So anyway, um, back to the using of when we sometimes we're going to have to deal with the fact of loved ones relapsing. Some of the other things that I did to get through that period of time, um, because he would, he'd, he'd kind of come in and, and then he'd, he'd uh, He'd go out for a while and he'd be in for three months, you know, in and out. You know, we've seen this a few times. We've done this a few times. And um, one of the best things that I did is since I couldn't count on him, I started reaching out apparently to women, okay? And that's quite frankly the only reason I think I started reaching out to women is because I couldn't count on him. Sometimes he wasn't there, so I had to have a backup plan. The other thing is, like I said, I got a sponsor and I started working the steps. You start working the steps, the steps are going to start working you, and that started getting me for the pain. And the third thing was service work. 
you know, I got on the helpline committee, and my asshole didn't seem to want to clean up, but yours did, okay? So I would answer those phone calls, and eventually I'd get on, I got on to, like, you know, I actually liked area service committee meetings. You know, they lasted all day long, and they were involved, and they were insane. But you know what? They got me out of the insanity of my house because my house is now an active dope house. And so it got me out of that. We like, Texas is a big state, and we would have, um, you know, our RSCs, we'd have to travel long distance, and Mary and I pack up that espresso machine and take it all sorts of places and explode it all over the state of Texas. So um, we got to where we enjoyed that. But eventually, you know, I got to thinking, I kept getting tired of it. It seemed like every year he'd have to do, go through like a major detox, and it was like clockwork. And we got to where we would just kind of call it summer camp. You know, Phil has to go to summer camp. And um, one day he, he uh, you know, I remember I had said, you know, I'm having trouble. I, heroin is not my direct choice. It was his, and I was really having trouble. I just like, felt like I couldn't compete with heroin. And I said, you know, I just wish it was something I could compete with, you know, like another woman. That I could get my hands around. So he came home from summer camp, clean, and he said that he had met someone, and he said he didn't know what he wanted to do. About a week later, he said that he had made up his mind what he wanted to do. He wanted me to move out and her to move in. And I remember just telling him, no. And then I walked out of the room and freaked out, okay, and called my sponsor. Oh, what am I going to do? And I went through the process. This went on for a few months. I started doing everything I knew to keep that man, whatever it took to keep him, okay. I just, I could not let him go. I could not let him leave, dope habit or not, okay. I only had a couple of years clean at this time, and I didn't have what it took to get there alone. Like I said, Remember, I had no coping skills when I got here. I had no strength. I had no way to get through pain. So my best strategy was to avoid the pain. So anyway, this went on for a few months, and I remember it was a Saturday morning, and I was getting dressed, and he came in, and he said that he made a decision. He was leaving me, and he was going to her now, right then. And I know that I did a lot of things that, that, that were fairly undignified when I was using, but I will always remember that day of being half-dressed, sinking to my knees in the hallway of my home, begging that man not to leave and having him turn away, look at me, turn away and go to her. I remember screaming. I remember lunging for the phone. And I remember calling my friend Nancy. And I remember Nancy saying, do not move. Stay where you are. Help us on the way. Her, she sent her boyfriend, because she was at work, she sent her boyfriend, Dale, who was also a good friend of ours, and he said, go get my sponsor. I was also her sponsor. He said, go get my sponsor. Take her down to Doors. That was our, our group. And he said, just stay. she said, just stay with her. And Nancy got on the phone, and one by one, the women of Narcotics Anonymous came. And they came with one reason, and that was to do whatever it took to get me through that night and through that situation and what I learned that night is that one more time I could get through a night if I had to five minutes at a time, but I finally no longer did it alone. That first night I spent on Ann's couch. The second night I spent on Teresa's couch. And, you know, just because I think God has a sense of humor, I mentioned that I had been audited. Well, this was on a Saturday, and that audit was scheduled for a Monday, okay, that Monday. So every time I tried to really freak out about him leaving me, I have remembered that I was probably going to go to jail on Monday. And every time I realized that I was going to jail on Monday, I thought, oh, my God, he's left me. And so it was kind of like I couldn't properly get freaked out about either one of them, okay? Now, I did. He came back. Okay. He came back. Of course he did. Whatever. Where else is he going to go for long? Um, you know, and I survived both him and that, that audit. You know, obviously I'm here. You know, but um, sometimes I've had people criticize that, that because I will share with sponsees that I really strongly recommend that they do not get in relationships their first year so clean because I remember that pain. I remember being in that hallway. Okay. And I say, you well, knew you're a hypocrite because you did it and you're still clean. And they are correct. I, I, I have been clean for 22 years. However, we buried that man this spring. He never made it. 
we always assume it's the female that's going to go. And it doesn't always happen that way, and we lost him. So that is my experience, strength and hope. It hurts. Can you get the, get the tools to walk through it? Yes, because I did. Um, you know, something else that, that, um, that I mentioned that a lot of times that we have to learn in, to walk through is, is death, grief and death. That's just a part of life. And, and as I mentioned, I'd lost my parents. And um, I was fortunate in that I got to enjoy recovery with my parents. My mother cleaned up in Alcoholics Anonymous um, two years before I did. And as a matter of fact, the day I cleaned up, I went and got a beer out of the refrigerator, swallowed a handful of hash, and went and turned myself into my mother's AA group. Um, now, they were, they, were, they were happy when, when a couple of months later, because it, it only took a couple of hours for them to figure out that alcohol was not my drug of choice. And um, they were happy for me when I got out of treatment a couple of months later and established Narcotics Anonymous as my home program. And they were very supportive of Narcotics Anonymous. Every once in a while, I'd get a phone call from one of those guys, and he'd say, Jan, we have one of your people here. Come get them. Um, and we did. Um, but after I had a couple of years, a few years clean, my mother began to succumb to, uh, to Alzheimer's, and it's just a nasty disease. And, you know, mother was not my best friend. Mother was my mother, okay? And I really loved her, and we were very, very close, and uh, especially once we got into recovery together. And my dad, I swear, he just started dying right along with her. It broke his heart to watch it, too. And it was really painful. I mean, I, I hated being over there. I hated seeing her. I hated reminding her of things. I just hated watching her slip away. And I didn't really want to deal with it. And a cousin of mine that had been raised with us actually stepped up, and she said that she would handle it, that she would take care of the, of their, the day-to-day situation, and I let her. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, that's probably not a good idea. But you know what? Often, even in recovery, you give me an option to avoid some pain, and I am subject to take it. And I did then. This went on for a few years, and one day I got a phone call from my um, parents' housekeeper. She said, come quick, it's your mama. And I went over, and the first thing I noticed is the gates at the driveway were closed, and they're never closed. And I got out of my car, and I, at the time I had red hair. It was very fashionable then. And um, I had red hair, and I walked up, and my mother was standing there at the gates. And she said, she looked at me, and she smiled the sweetest smile. And she said, I used to know a girl with red hair. And I knew at that moment I was never going to talk to my mother again. I took her to the doctor, and, of course, they they did. They confirmed that she apparently had a small stroke and that physically she was okay, but that her mind was probably gone and that she wasn't coming back. And I remember that day was really, really, really rough. Um, And I remember somebody that night told me, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. And I said, good, because that is it. And the next day, I got a phone call from the mate again, and she said, you better come quick. She said, uh, that cousin of yours has taken your parents away and put a for sale sign in the yard. So what she had done is she had been systematically looting the estate for a few years. She had emptied out all the money out of their bank accounts, all the money out of their life insurance policies, put the house up for sale, and with her to um, to receive the, uh, the proceeds. She had issues. And... Um, you know, that day I remember standing there in that driveway, um, and the day I had feared since childhood had come to pass. I had lost my parents and my financial security in one day. Um, I remember getting a lawyer. I remember having to go to court. I remember having to go get my dad and put him back. I remember we left my mother in a nursing home, and, and I remember the end of that day, and I thought, I cannot, I can't. I All I need is if I can just get, just end this day, I'll be fine, and I went home, and I went home alone, and I remember thinking, I'm going to be okay. And I remember taking a bath, and I remember thinking, Mm-mm. And there is a line in More Will Be Revealed that simply says, we often have to be willing to do that one extra thing. And I knew for me what that one extra thing was. It's you. I made a phone call. I drove the mile over to my girlfriend's house, and her and her husband just were with me until I could go to sleep that night. Now, at that night, that time, I probably had seven years clean. 
Now, at the time, what I did not, what I didn't really realize is that I had slowly been kind of slipping back on that practicing these principles in all of our affairs, as sometimes happens. Um, you know, our book also tells us that once we have time, once we get clean, what is our biggest enemy? Complacency. Okay. Um, I was no longer doing service work because I was burnt out. I'd done it all, and they weren't doing it right anyway. They never did it my way. They never learned. Um, I was still going to meetings, but by this time, you know, you kind of reach that point where you're like, man, if I hear that asshole one more time, you know, and I thought, oh, and I heard it all. Now, and usually I'd go to a meeting, and they're sharing about, you know, how to stay clean. What a concept. It isn't, you know, a Narcotics Anonymous program. And um, I could share on that and sound brilliant because I had done that. And I realized that what gradually I had started to do is that I had talked a lot more about what I used to do than what I was currently doing. Okay, I could go in and I could share on those, share on that topic and help that newcomer and tell them how to get a sponsor and tell them what it was like for me in those early days, and then still carry what was a few secrets and carry what was going on. Um, you know, I also had gotten into a, another relationship, which on the sick meter was probably just one notch up above that treatment center um, romance. It was with a lawyer. That should explain it. Um, oh, sorry, Bobby. <laughs> the, uh, one of the things is that I remember is that um, it was kind of just like looking back, it was like a slow whirlpool going down. I began to resort to some of my old familiar uh, methods of dealing with pain, avoidance, and procrastination. You know, Dope was one of the, pain was one of the reasons that I used dope, okay? And now that I'm not using that, I have to look for other alternatives. So I began to do things the old way, like not pay bills because that's not fun and that's uncomfortable, and use money that I no longer have to buy things that will temporarily make me feel good, okay? So eventually what's beginning to happen is that I can no longer answer the phone because it may be a bill collector. I can't open my mail because it is a bill collector, okay? And, and I'm not really telling anybody. I'm still going to meetings and I'm sharing about my experience and hope on how to stay clean in Narcotics Anonymous. And usually what I would say is I would usually conclude my sharing with, well, you know what? I've got problems today and I'm struggling with something really tough, but at least I'm clean, okay? And that's accurate, but it wasn't exactly honest. It wasn't exactly the truth. Well, eventually what happened is uh, my mother's nursing home called. They'd already removed me from managing the affairs the court had. And my mother's nursing home called, and they said, we're suing you. We're taking you to court because you're not dealing with your responsibilities. <laughs> and um, I thought, oh, really? Well, I'll show you. I'll just commit suicide and let you see you make me deal with my responsibilities. Now, this was not the first time I thought about suicide. I don't know any self-respecting addict, quite frankly, that doesn't, you know, at least think about it a couple of times. Go to a group conscience meeting and you are there, okay? But it usually passes. This time, though, it didn't pass because this time it was a way out of the pain. You told me when I got here that you could help me get through the pain and struggle of life. I didn't want to learn how to get through the pain and struggle of life. I wanted a life without pain and struggle. And the only way I was going to get that was not to be in this life. The problem was I didn't know how to do it, okay? I'd heard of people trying it and botching it and ending up worse than they started off with. I also knew that those that were successful, they weren't available to ask. And you just can't call your sponsor and say, if you're going to commit suicide, how would you do it, okay? But you know what? I knew that I would find a way. If, if I needed to go that route, it was, it was, a, it was there. And I knew I could, I, something would come up. So actually, I very quietly and just, I just started organizing things. I remember I put together a will. Um, I made instructions on what to do with my dog, Fang. And um, I felt good. For the first time in a long time, I felt good. I had about 10 years at this time. And uh, I remember the uh, the boyfriend called. Um, and we, we were talking about making plans to go out. Um, and things were really going good, by the way, with the relationship right then. I was very happy with that. 
And so I, later on that day, I got out. We weren't, we didn't have plans that day, but I got out and I was in his neighborhood and I thought, you know what? I think I'll just go by and surprise him. I have a key. So, um, I went by and, uh, and I was having trouble with my key in the lock, okay, and it, was, it wouldn't open. So I went around the back to, to where the bedroom door is, and it was almost like somebody was, like, holding the door. And I looked in, and there he is, buck naked, holding the door, okay. Now, there's only one reason a man with no clothes on is going to be trying to keep a woman out, okay, and that's as if he has a woman in, okay. So anyway, I, 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 take, I don't take no for an answer really well, so I busted my way on in and, you know, made myself at home. And um, that didn't go well. Um, you know, and I remember, you know, I left there and I, I went, I'm very well trained. I went and I called my sponsor. And she wasn't available, but she said, you know what to do. She said, go find somebody and be at my house tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And so I went and I found uh, my friend Charles had cleaned up about the same time I had. And we went we had coffee, which is always the answer to all the problems in Narcotics Anonymous. And so we're sitting there, and we're, I'm just, you know, oh, woe is me, woe is me. And I'm talking about the, uh, the um, uh, how he'd done me wrong and uh, how upset I was. And then I said, but you know what really pisses me off is that now if I commit suicide, the son of a bitch will think it's because of him, okay? And I meant that because, quite frankly, it wasn't my relationship that sucked. It was pretty much my whole life that sucked. The relationship was just a part of it. But now, if I commit suicide right after walking in on this guy, everybody in the world is going to think that I did it because of him. And I, there's no way I'm going to get him credit for this. Okay? No way. Uh-uh. I'm pissed. So now I can't even do that. However, what I realized is what had happened just then when I told that man that. What had I done? Step one. I admitted what was going on. I gave it a voice. I told you what was happening. I told you what was wrong. So Charles listened, and he said, you know, he said, I think that, um, he said, he said, Sonny, he said, um, I'm not going to tell you you can't do that, but I will tell you if you commit suicide, I will miss you. He said, what I would prefer that you do is go home, call somebody else, and tell them exactly what you told me, and keep that appointment with your sponsor before you do anything. That night I went home, and I didn't tell one person. I actually called two people, okay, and I kept that appointment with my sponsor. <sighs> You know, um, by this time, like I said, I had about 10 years clean. And what I realize today is that by this time in Narcotics Anonymous, I had learned how to survive pain without the use of dope. And you have got to be able to do that or you go nowhere else in this program. I'm aware of the fact that we lose an awful lot of people that cannot get through the pain of bless their hearts, whatever it is, without dope. But if you can't do that, then you can't go anywhere else. Because I also know that when I become complacent in using these steps or those tools that I mentioned to you and all the ones that other ones that I haven't mentioned, when I become complacent, then I revert back to my old familiar patterns such as avoidance and procrastination and denial and self-indulgence to get through pain. I also know that just like I said, through not taking care of my personal responsibilities, I create many of my own problems. And I also know finally that there is, a, there is a difference between relief and recovery. Relief for me is when I just try to get out of the pain, okay? Just, just fix it, just get it out, get out of the crisis. Recovery is when I learn how to do it differently, you know, and that's what it takes. I remember somebody, a guy was talking about um, uh, being, he, his, things really went really badly at his, his work, and it felt like he'd been kicked down into the basement of his soul. And no matter how try, hard he tried to get out, he couldn't get out. He kept trying, trying, trying. And finally, it just occurred to him, well, you know what, apparently I'm not going anywhere. So as long as I'm down here, I might as well have a look around. And that's what I have known today is that uh, I have heard things like that. I have heard things such as uh, to rob a person of their pain is to rob them of an opportunity to grow. Doesn't mean if you have pain you're going to grow. It means you have the opportunity. I also know that I have been told that in certain things I, there is a lesson for me to learn. And if I do not learn it, take the time to learn it, I will repeat this over and over until I do. 
So in Narcotics Anonymous, I had to stay long, I had to stay clean long enough to find that I could survive the pain. Because only if I know I can survive it can I begin to do like that thing said that I said in the beginning to get close to it and sift it for its gold. Now, how do I do that? The steps of Narcotics Anonymous. You know, my sponsor had me make, at that time, she said, I want you to make a list for my four-step. Um, I had to uh, make a list of people I thought had that had withheld things from me uh, that had caused me pain through withholding. Withholding attention, withholding love, withholding money, withholding sex, you name it, whatever it is, withholding. And what I learned is that some of the withholding had been intentional and some had not. When you grow up in a household with addiction, things are withheld. They're busy. They're preoccupied. You know, sometimes communication, information, even boundaries, values, whatever, don't don't get communicated, don't get passed out. And that is a feeling of, so I know what it feels like to have information withheld, especially when I had parents that were trying to protect me, okay? So I knew what withholding information felt like to be on that end uh, to receive it which explains why I hooked up with some pretty questionable people as an adolescent that actually had this really kind of sick game of like kind of like ostracizing one from the, the group or from the herd and criticizing, belittling the whole thing, and that person had to do whatever was necessary to get back and get back included with the, the cool group. That made them sick, but I knew what it felt like. They were withholding approval. They were withholding love. They were withholding kindness, and I knew what that felt like. So it may have been sick, but it was familiar. And what do I know about me? I gravitate to what's familiar. Uh, that also explains why some of the men that I picked up with later on, unavailable, emotionally unavailable, if you're withholding, whether they be married or whether they just couldn't be there, it was a form of withholding. Now, I share this because this is what I had to learn in, four, in this fourth step when I had 10 years clean. I just recently did another one at, what, 22 years clean. The stuff I did in my first fourth step was carry out the garbage. The stuff I do in my inventories now, cause and effect, okay? I cannot look at that stuff um, early on. Six and seven, I worked off of a list that I had made when I first cleaned up about a list that I wanted the perfect man, Okay, my sponsor said, well, maybe you just don't know what you're looking for, so I want you to make a list. So uh, I made a list, and I still didn't find a perfect man. And one day I was looking at that list, and I thought, son of a gun. The object was not to look for the, the characteristics. The object was to become the list. Because only if I do that am I going to be a match for a person like that. One of the things on that list was honesty. To this day, I used to pray. I used to ask God to help me stay clean. Today I ask God to help me stay honest. If I stay honest, I will not tell myself I can have just one, okay? And I have to do it with the little things. If I drop a Kleenex, I don't just say, oh, well, whatever, it's biodegradable. No one will care. You know what? It's mine. I dropped it. It's my responsibility. If I cannot be honest about the little things, do you really think I'm going to be honest about the big ones, okay? So today I use little things as practice for the, the bigger things. Kindness was another thing on that list. I am self-centered, arrogant, egotistical. I'm describing maybe anybody else in the room, too. You know, stop me if I'm wrong. You know, yeah, hands going up. Me. That's something I have to work on. But a big thing that I have to do is self-discipline. I have had to learn how to tell myself no. I have learned to do it before the authorities do it. I have learned to do it before the bank says no, you know. I have had to learn how to tell myself no, that I can't have everything I want. I can have choices about what I want. Probably the most significant thing and the biggest change has been in step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and power to carry it out. Uh, when I got here, I said, well, what do I pray? And they said, well, what have you been praying? And so I kind of told them these few prayers that, you know, I had in Sunday school 30 years ago. And they said, uh, well, you're welcome to continue that. Or if that doesn't work, you're welcome to put it up on the shelf and have anything here you'd like. The step tells you to do the prayer and meditation. It doesn't tell you what to do it with. That's a personal decision and a personal choice. Um, so when I hit this, I thought, well, you know what, my concept of spirituality had pretty much been confined within the walls of Narcotics Anonymous for, for 10 or 11 years. 
And I thought, I wonder what other people do, and I'd like to see. And before you think that I'm going to violate traditions or anything like that, calm down, keep your seat. You know, it talks about in Step 11 of it, it works how and why, that many of us adopted an eclectic approach, borrowing practices from a wide variety of sources. So what I did is I went out, the criteria for me is that if I talked to you about what you did for prayer and meditation, I sought out people and organizations that had what I considered a close, loving, and fun relationship with a God of their understanding, because that's what I wanted. Um, I went out and I found some things that began to work with me, and it opened doors in every dream possible. Key thing, though, I did not walk out of that door not to return to Narcotics Anonymous. I went out of that door, I practiced a few things, saw what works, and I still do that today, and I bring it back to my program in Narcotics Anonymous. I don't share a lot of those stuff in the podiums or at meetings. A lot of this stuff is personal. I just practice the prayer and meditation in my own special way. The power to carry it out, what did it give me the power to do? I'll never forget the day that I moved to L.A. to do that doctorate degree. I'd had maybe two hours sleep in what seemed like four months, and I put my friend Steve that had helped me move on a plane, and I pulled out of the airport, and there I was. It was 7 a.m., and I'm in Los Angeles, and I am looking at the worst freeway I have ever seen in my entire life. And all of a sudden, the magnitude of what I have done has come crashing down on me. I have moved 1,500 miles away from everyone I know, everyone I love. I don't know anyone. I'm doing this program that no addict can do. It's impossible to do. There's no way I can do this. I'm going to fail. I did it. Da, da, da. And I say, you know what? I am going to freak out. Right now, right here by the side of this road, I'm going to freak out. And this little voice in the back of my mind said, you are just too tired to properly freak out. Go home, get some rest, and then freak out. And I thought, I can do that. So I went home. I went to sleep. I woke up that afternoon. I unpacked. Three years later, this dope thing achieved a doctorate degree because of Narcotics Anonymous. Now, I've had a lot of people in and out of this program say they really respected and admired how a dope thing goes to do that and what I had done. And the, even people, like I said, that were in the program said, I really admire your being able to do that. How do you do that? You know, I've had people probably, how do you do that? Step four and five showed me what prevented me from achieving my goals. Step six and seven has taught me what I need to do to achieve these. And step 11 teams me up with God to go get it done. You know, the things that I do today as far as walking through the pain, I don't go to meetings anymore to share my experience, strength, and hope on how to stay clean. I go to meetings to share my experience, strength, and hope on what's going on in my life today. I have to stay current. I'm a firm believer that we have done, we have done really good with helping the newcomers get the message that the lie is dead, that they don't have to die of an active addiction. I'm not so sure we've done good about keeping our old timers in our meetings. And that comes from being an old-timer that, that just said, what's there for me? I'm not saying the newcomer is not the most important person in any meeting, but I also know that if we don't start addressing the issues that we go in as old-timers, walking through this pain and being able to go on and do other things besides just used up, we are going to lose old-timers to other places where they can get those needs met. Um, and I share this um, having been a person that has said many times I'm leaving Narcotics Anonymous. I, it doesn't have what I need. It doesn't have what I want. And the God of my understanding keeps throwing me back here. Okay? Sometimes it's in the form of a real cute guy or sometimes it's in the form of a crisis, whatever. But I know today that I wasn't supposed to clean up in church. I cleaned up here. I wasn't supposed to clean up at the, the racetrack. I cleaned up in Narcotics Anonymous. I enjoy my recovery in Narcotics Anonymous today. Today I can sit up here and I can tell you that right now, today, I am going through something rough, but I'm not going to be vague about it. My sponsor knows about it. My friends know about it. My home group knows about it. Um, and I heard one of the speakers talk about it. I've done really good on the inventories with, um, with personal relationships because I had a sponsor that said, you have got to get better in this. You know, and a lot of the work that we did, but that, issue of tying financial security to my well-being has been a very hard thing to break. That's the issue that currently that I'm working on now is actually beginning to believe 
that in 6 and 7, it's not humility with you that is necessary. It is humility with God. And what that means is that if you look up the definition of spirituality, it has nothing to do with materialism. That is very hard for me to let go of. And it comes from, like I said, from some of the roots of childhood. I have had to take a look at where I got some crazy messages. Because if I know where they came from, I can say, you know what? Now that I know where that's about, I don't have to go there anymore. I learned that I learned shame. Okay? I learned avoidance as a tool from, from active addicts in my household. And if I learned it, I can learn a new way. I will learn that way if I had my way here within the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. I am proud of this. I got a phone call today from some people, from one of the girls back home, and it makes me so proud to be a member of Narcotics Anonymous. But um, she said that, um, you know, a lot of people with the, the hurricane are being evacuated into Dallas and into Houston. And the fellowship back there right now is really, really busy. They're organizing people and groups to go find the people inside the shelters that are addicts within our rooms and take them meetings, take them books, take them messages. And every time I think I can't walk through pain, I'm going to remember that phone call that Y'all will be there for me just as we will be for the next people. I am proud to be a member of Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you. I love you. I didn't even need my glasses. Thank you, Jan, for carrying the message. Um, I've asked a friend to read just for the day, please. Hi, Rashid. I'm an addict from Detroit, Michigan. Just for the day, tell yourself. Just for the day, my thoughts will be on my recovery, living and enjoying life without the use of drugs. Just for today, I will have faith in someone in NA who believes in me and wants to help me in my recovery. Just for today, I will have a program. I will try to follow it to the best of my ability. Just for today, through NA, I will try to get a better perspective on my life. Just for today, I will be unafraid. My thoughts will be on my new associations, people who are not using and will find a new way of life. So long as I follow that way, I have nothing to fear. Thank you. For those who uh, care to, let's close the meeting.